This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas A&M University, where the College of Engineering is ranked number one in Texas, according to the latest U.S. News & World Report graduate school rankings. Learn more at today.tamu.edu. And Amerigroup. It's time for Texas to implement objective metrics around quality, cost, and customer satisfaction in the Medicaid contract procurement process. More at healthactionnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for Thursday, April 8th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins and I'm Managing Editor for News and Politics for the Tribune. This week we are joined by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Politics Reporter Patrick Spitek. Good afternoon. And Health and Human Services Reporter Karen Harper. Hello. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, As we speak, On April 8th, we are two days away from the one-month mark from when Governor Greg Abbott's mask order was lifted across the state. Um, It created a lot of concern among people statewide about whether we were acting too soon, whether this would create another spike in in cases. But as that month has gone on, uh, vaccinations have continued and so far, at least, the numbers appear to look good. The um, positivity rate at, uh, has been has remained well under 10%, which was the red flag uh, number that Greg, Greg Abbott cited early in the pandemic. And yesterday on April 7th, we the state reported 99 deaths, still way too many deaths, of course, but far below the kind of numbers around 300 or really over 400 that we were seeing at the peak earlier this year. Karen, you've been tracking some of these trends. What are we seeing? What, how would you describe the current you know, status of the pandemic in Texas right now? Um, the, the hospitalizations, new cases, and average new deaths are all down um, and continuing to decrease um, while the vaccine uh, doses are, of course, continuing to uptick. Um, last week, uh, in the last week or so, we saw about 266,000 doses uh, reported every day, um, Texas, uh, which which is a significant number um, and metric, given that um, people are 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 attributing that in part to uh, the decrease in, in cases and deaths. Of course, here we're not yet part of the national uh, trend that we're seeing in some of the uh, Midwest and Northeast states, where they're seeing cases rise. Uh, we're still we're still going down. So. Um, you know, we'll see what the spring break effect could have been, um, you know, as those cases start getting, uh, you know, reported in the next, you know, a few days. That's about the timeline when it kind of incubates. Um, so we'll, we're watching that. But so far, Texas is still um, trending down on cases and deaths and hospitalizations. So that's good news for us. Right. So, I mean, the national narrative is in large part that it's a race between the vaccine and the variants, right? That the, we are right. seeing the spread of more contagious and in some cases more uh, deadly or, or more serious, more frequently serious strains of the vaccine spreading while at the same time vaccinating. And, and a lot of evidence seems to be suggesting that the vaccines still work against those strains. But so, I mean, what, what, what do we say here? Cautious optimism? I mean, the, the things are training in the right direction, but, but still definitely not out of the woods here. 
Yeah, I'd say that's fair. You know, I mean, the UK, you know, is all the variants are here in Texas and, and there's no reason to believe that Texas Texans wouldn't be any more susceptible than they would in other parts of the country. Um, but so far we're keeping a, a lid on it, um, relatively speaking. You know, of course, 100 deaths in a day is, is still 100 more than, than should be happening, um, as I think we can all agree. So um, cautious optimism is probably a really good way to describe that. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, that some people that I've spoken with uh, recently have said is that the, the dropping of the mask mandate um, may have uh, contributed to some, uh, some lack of enthusiasm among Texans who may have been already on the fence about getting the vaccine. Uh, in some areas, we're seeing demand go down. We're getting stories um, you know, from places like Austin Public Health that have thousands of open appointments at the end of their day. Um, that's happened twice in the last two weeks. And we heard from state health officials uh, a couple of weeks ago that um, some rural areas were reporting surpluses. They just weren't being able to find enough people um, to, to get those. And, and some of this might be, you know, problems with waiting lists that are, that are outdated where people have already gotten their shots elsewhere. And, and, uh, and then there's also issues with outreach. You know, if you've got a thousand appointments at the end of the day, you know, there's a thousand people in Austin who, who want the, the vaccine and don't know that they can get it, you know, through the public health if there's appointments. So um, there's several gaps in that, but, um, but th that's been one of the effects of the mass mandate since we were talking about it earlier. I just thought of it um, on, the, on the vaccine update, but generally speaking, I think, um, I think Texas um, is, is um, not out of the woods yet, but looking better than some of the other parts of the, of the country. Patrick, it does not seem, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you track Greg Abbott a lot more closely than I do. It does not seem like we're seeing necessarily a victory lap from Abbott uh, on this. It, it seems like he has not necessarily been out there, you know, celebrating or, or saying, I told you so about this mask mandate so far. Am I, am I wrong on that? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, uh, at least not yet. What you do see him is continuing to share the, you know, latest vaccination numbers, you know, how, how there's been an uptick in, in the number of shots in arms, but you don't see him taking any victory lap, at least yet on, um, you know, all these key indicators of the, of the state of the pandemic in Texas. Um, and obviously, I think that that's, uh, you know, probably a smart move. He's <laughs> you know, been at this for the past year. He knows how these things can fluctuate, how it can look like, you know, things are calm. And then all of a sudden, you know, there is, you know, an increase, um, you know, when perhaps not expected. And so, um, you know, it probably is politically smart for him to stay quiet about that for now. Because as, you know, Karen said, obviously, these numbers are encouraging, but we may not be out of the woods yet. Sure. You know, and there's so, a danger. I think, I think Karen's right. I think there's a danger in popping the champagne right now because people will say, well, I guess I don't need a vaccination. Yeah. And then you've got a, then you've got a whole new problem and you're back in the land Patrick's talking about where it looked good for a minute. And then. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, the proverbial kind of mission accomplished banner. We are very far away from, <laughs> yeah. from hanging exactly, that out. Exactly right. That's right. So one thing we did see some, see from uh, Patrick today is that um, the uh, or sorry from from App, Greg Abbott this week was was he he came out you know with with an order banning state agencies and state funded organizations from requiring proof of vaccination the so called vaccine passports Patrick what was what was Abbott saying about about that move. Well, he's clearly trying to get ahead of um, some of the concerns that there's actually going to be, you know, these passports required, even though I don't think there are any real signs that that was a, 
a serious threat in Texas. And, uh, you know, even at the federal level, I know that the, the Biden administration has said that it's not something that they're pursuing as a governmental entity, that it's something that they would uh, leave up to the private sector. So um, this obviously is, I think, you know, more symbolic and political than, than anything else. Um, you know, and it comes and it's just because I'm the, the you know, watching the politics of this so closely, it's another move where Abbott is kind of chasing or, or coming a few days after uh, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, who really, at least to the to the right, has been kind of a hero of the pandemic in terms of his resistance to coronavirus restrictions and now what he's done to uh, reject this idea of uh, vaccine passports. And so we're really getting into this, this trend where Ron DeSantis does something in Florida and then Abbott figures out some way to follow up on it and replicate it or put his own spin on it um, you know, a short time later. So it's really an interesting dynamic to watch, especially as both of them are, are being discussed as potential presidential candidates, Ron DeSantis more seriously than Abbott. But uh, there definitely seems to be some kind of uh, you know, soft rivalry there. Sure. Karen, I wanted to get back to the vaccine question. You've been doing a little bit of reporting on why Texas may or may not be lagging a little bit in the um, you know, percent of people fully vaccinated and, and, and things like that. Uh, what, are, what are you finding as the explanation for that? Well, you know, depending on who you ask is, is the answer you'll get in terms of which metric really shows how well Texas is doing, right? So Texas has uh, an outsized younger population. 25% of the residents don't even, aren't even old enough to get a shot. Um, and, and so if you look at the, the percentage of people who are old enough to get the shot who have been fully vaccinated, where we're, you know, Texas is on par with Florida, just, you know, uh, just um, a little bit under the, you know, the national average. Um, and, um, you know, and in terms of uh, doses administered, people covered, you know, um, for the whole population, it drops, you know, a little bit. We, we get down into the bottom half, bottom third of it. Um, there are a lot of challenges, some of which um, advocates say could have been avoided with longer term planning. We have a very fractured public health system. Uh, we have 7,000 providers for a vaccine signed up, several thousand, 7,000 signed up, Several thousand of those are, are giving the shot, doing their own um, uh, processes. So that does slow down any kind of top-down statewide streamlined effort, both to get the vaccine out and administered and to get the data back. Um, and so there's a number of things at play. You know, there, there are places like uh, Alaska that have a large uh, native and military population who are covered by federal uh, programs that the state doesn't have to deal with. And that's all sounds a little bit like, you know, apologists kind of speaking. And, and that's not what I'm trying to, to, to say here. Really, the bigger story is a lot more nuanced than where we fall in the rankings and really what kind of numbers you're looking for. Um, but Texas isn't at the top of any of those lists. You know, we, we are still, um, you know, in the bottom or middle third um, on most of those metrics. Um, but it's a big undertaking here. And we do have a, a, um, a registry that, uh, immunization registry that wasn't really prepared for, um, you know, mass vaccination reporting that was required by the pandemic. So you're also seeing potentially tens of thousands of doses administered a day that the state hasn't gotten the record of yet. So our counts are behind too on that front. When you look at places like California and Florida, where the public health departments in every county play a really big role in their rollout, uh, they're also, you know, in California, every county has a, has a public health department, I believe, and in Florida, I think they're all run by the state, and you have a very streamlined process. And in Texas, it's, it's fractured. 
and, and people like it that way. You know, Texas doesn't, you know, they like local control and they like to be able to have, you know, and, until, they, until the services are needed and the state has to step in and provide some of those services that the public health uh, department would, would provide if they were, they were there. Um, so it's a, kind of a long-winded answer to what you asked, but it, it's, it's, a, it's not a simple answer really. Um, mm -hmm. I, the short short version of you know of the bottom line here is that Texas has been moving up in the rankings. I think at one point we were 49 out of 50 uh, above only Georgia um, in the amount of vaccine we were get, getting out, and uh, and we've moved up into you know the middle third, kind of um, just depending on what what metrics you're looking at. So that's where we're at in the in the overall rankings. This I didn't flag this question, so it may be an unfair left field question. But how far are we from herd um, immunity? I mean, that's that's a good ways off, right? Yeah, we we've got sixteen, uh, almost seventeen percent of Texas population uh, fully vaccinated. Um, that number is going to be higher uh, when you look at um, over the eight, over the age of eighteen. But that's not the metric, right? The metric right. is total population. So, you know, if you're looking at 75, 80% of our population, you're looking at 22 to 25 million people, adults, 100% of whom would have to be fully vaccinated in order for us to achieve the very minimum for what they think might be herd immunity. Now, herd immunity for measles is 95%. They're putting COVID around 70 to 90%, 75% being a safe number, but that's not really a number anybody in Texas, including the state health officials, realistically think will we'll ever reach, um, or at least not until, you know, children and teenagers and adolescents can be vaccinated too. So we're quite a ways off of that. I, I will say that um, a uh, uh, well over half, and I, I, don't, I don't know what today's number is because it creeps up uh, dramatically, but uh, of 65% and over, um, of Texans have, have gotten doses and we are ahead of the national curve on senior citizens, which is one of the reasons we've seen a drop in deaths, a drop in hospitalizations, uh, a drop in nursing home deaths dramatically. Um, so if you're looking at certain age groups, you know that the seniors are reaching are a lot closer to herd immunity in their age group than we are, but you have to have everybody to do that. So that's where yeah. we're at. Karen, you mentioned earlier that the, the wait lists are getting shorter and that some vaccine sites have, you know, open slots where people can, can come in at the end of the day and, and get their vaccine. Are we reaching kind of a new phase in this rollout where the low hanging fruit isn't there? The people who want the vaccine were really eager to get it or have, have now gotten it. And, and now the more kind of outreach meeting people where they are convincing them to get the vaccine phase is going to have to go into effect. Yeah, I think that that is, if it's not already here, it's, it's imminent. You know, <clears throat> you've got Tarrant County, for example, has said that they'll get through their waiting list, you know, within a few weeks. Um, uh, we've got um, Austin Public Health is working on purging their waiting list of people who have already gotten their shots and have, are closing out their days with extra appointments. And, and we've got um, rural counties saying that they're, you know, they, they've got vaccines for anybody who wants them out there, which was a big part of the reason they opened up eligibility to everybody. We're also hearing a lot of people still saying that they don't, they can't seem to get in for an appointment. Um, and a lot of that might be um, backlog on the waiting list, or it might be technological, you know, um, lack of technological knowledge, you know, or, or time being able to be spent to, to get on these, uh, on these uh, appointments. Um, the state has created a central registry for publicly owned health um, centers and, and, um, and departments that 
that will help streamline some of that process so that people can go to one place to do it. Um, I think in larger cities, you know, in, in the larger cities, there are still vast amounts of people who are um, who don't have job flexibility, who are hesitant or who don't know where to go get the vaccine or don't have internet access at all to be able to find out what number they have to call or, or make an appointment. So you still have um, a lot of uh, communities of color that um, aren't being uh, reached to the proportions they are represented in the state. And so you, you've got really two, two tracks here. I think what you've said is, is accurate. I think the people that really, that A, really want one, B, have the access to it, uh, and C, have the time and, and energy to devote to it, are getting their shots a lot more quickly than they were, say, a month ago. You know, I feel like every single day, someone in my network says, got the shot, got the shot, got the shot. But see, my network is a lot different from, you know, somebody who lives in a rural area or, you know, um, that, that kind of population. So um, the answer to your question is yes and also no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, let's take a quick break uh, and hear a message from our sponsors. Then we'll talk about the politic political developments of the past week. The University of Texas at Austin. As Texas's leading research university, UT prepares students to do research that impacts Texas's economy, cultural life, and national treasures. Find out more at utexas.edu. And Texas 2036. A majority of Texans aren't attaining the skills employers seek. We need workforce policies that prepare Texans for continued success. For more, visit texas2036.org. All right. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go first, like I said, go first to Patrick and uh, Dan Patrick and the, uh, his press conference and things like that. But I think I'll probably ask about, you know, the, um, the Beto, I'm not running, I'm running thing on Friday and, and also um, the George P. news that came out today. Just a little bit of some, some fun little political nonsense that happened this week. Well, and that weird Mike Collier, you know, oh, thinking yeah. about maybe considering... You know, it's like Karen's answer a minute ago. Yes and no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> happens a lot around here, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, here we go. All right, so the legislative session continues and we have seen this week more heat kind of building around the voting issue. Uh, SB7 in the Senate, a, a fairly wide ranging package um, adding new restrictions to voting and also HB6, which passed a House chamber this morning, which um, is maybe a little bit of toned down version, doesn't have all the implements uh, of, of SB7. We also saw a pretty intense um, uh, Dan Patrick press conference early in the week where he pushed back around a lot of the narrative that has been built up around this bill. Patrick, can you summarize uh, what we heard from Dan Patrick this week and, and where we stand with all this? Yeah, he held a, a pretty fiery press conference in which he tore into some of these um, corporations that have been speaking out against these uh, voting bills across the country, including in Georgia and Texas. Um, you know, his argument here is that these uh, corporations don't know what they're talking about and that they should be staying out of these policy debates if they're not fully informed, at least as, as he interprets their knowledge of the situation. Um, so he didn't really make any news at this news conference, but we got a lot of, um, you know, sound and fury from him 
pushing back on these corporations getting um you know getting involved in these these uh, voting rights policy debates and you know it's been part of this pushback that has also included uh greg abbott the governor um he didn't initially say anything last week when american airlines came out against um uh one of these bills in texas but he was on fox news earlier this week um and he basically echoed the same you know the same talking points that dan patrick had which is that these corporate giants need to stay out of politics if they don't know what they're talking about. Um, and so we've really seen a really fierce pushback. And quite frankly, it seems like it's been it's been successful if you just consider that there really hasn't been any additional corporations or major entities or institutions to speak out against the Texas bills since last week. I mean, it really was American Airlines, Dell, and I believe Microsoft may have gently weighed into it. Um, but you know they prompted this very intense backlash from state Republican leaders, and since then we haven't really seen any other. Um, and correct me if you guys have seen anyone else, but it, it seems like we haven't seen any other of these corporate these corporate giants or major institutions stick their neck out since we've had this Republican backlash to their backlash. Yeah, they're not taking on specific bills. You see a lot of corporations sort of right. saying we're we're in favor of voting and voting rights, and people ought to be able to vote. And also you should diet and take your vitamins. Um, and, and the um, companies that stepped out, you know, Patrick and those guys have been so far successful in making that politically expensive to do. Um, you can take a hard position against, you know, Senate Bill 7, but I'm going to twist your nose for it. Right. Does, Ross, do you think this changes the conversation around these bills in the legislature much? Um... Or is it more noise? You know, I mean, it, it changed the conversation. Really, you know, the best measure of this is the bathroom bill in 2017. And it changed the conversation then. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about why are the companies doing this? And does this hurt economic development? That was a seemed to be a much more clear cut argument. You were talking about, you know, um, you're talking about rights in both cases, but it was a little bit more concrete in the case of the bathroom bill, a little bit easier to understand and, you know, less sort of a gray area than there is in voting rights. And so far, the Republicans have been successful with the argument that we're all for everybody voting. We all want secure votes. Those are both pretty safe things to say in any partisan audience and without getting into the particulars of the bill. The bathroom bill is harder and I think the corporate corporations are finding that, you know, when they weigh into these things, they have to be ready for a fight. Um, it's not just, you know, what your employees are saying to you or what your shareholders are saying to you or even what your customers are saying to you. It's what will the cost be of taking a position? What will the cost be of not taking a position? The big, to me, the big difference between, and I agree with Ross, it does feel like the closest parallel we have is the bathroom bill fight. To me, the big difference there is that with the bathroom bill, you know, for the longest time, there was a big, big question about uh, whether state leaders were, were all behind this. And obviously they weren't. You had Dan Patrick pushing it. You had Joe Strauss pretty openly resistant to it by the end of that debate. Uh, and then you had this Greg Abbott as a big question mark. With these voting bills, you basically have all three of the big three on board with this. Greg Abbott called it uh, an emergency item. Dan Patrick gave it a low bill number in the Senate. Uh, the new House Speaker, Dave Phelan, gave it a low bill number indicating a priority as well. And so unlike with the bathroom bill fight, um, we kind of know how this story is, is going to end. They're going to they're going to pass something. Something's going to make it to Greg Abbott's desk and he's going to sign it. Yeah, I think I think 
That's right. The question is, what do they pass? And is it does it look more like the the proposal that's going through the House right now, which um, we have seen voting rights groups opposed to it. We have heard, seen them speak out, um, but also maybe heard a, a quieter sentiment that it's not quite as you know widespread or in, intense as as SB seven. Um, so does that make Dan Patrick happy? Is he okay with that? If that's the version that comes back to him, or or does it turn into a fight about how far they go or anything like that? I think is one question to to be thinking about. Yeah, I think I think the corporations, the corporate backlash, has the potential to maybe on the you know, kind of margins of this legislation, maybe hem in or kind of scale back some of the some of the provisions. The one thing that, and I'd be curious for you guys to take on this, but unlike in Georgia where you saw a lot of uproar centered on some very specific provisions, like for example, that provision that, uh, you know, that, that banned the handing out of food or water to people in line in some cases, you know, there was a lot of groups that rallied around specific provisions like that. And watching the backlash to these bills in Texas, I haven't seen as much of a concentration on specific provisions. Um, and so when it gets to this, this discussion of, you know, are there any provisions that maybe they're going to drop or maybe they can scale back? I just don't know where they would, where they would start. Cause I just haven't seen, uh, that the backlash get that specific, but, um, maybe I'm missing, you know, a more specific conversation. Well, I think part of the thing in Georgia was, you know, they started with a fight during the election over counting votes and, you know, that's where Trump right. was intervening. Right. So they had all of that. I mean, in some sense, the Texas corporate backlash is an echo of Georgia and not really a full wave of its own. Yeah, well, sure. And you also had, I mean, uh, when that was happening in Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania and everything, you had people like Greg Abbott pointing to Texas about how we do things well. You right. know? So you also have a little bit less of the impetus of like things were so terrible here. We need, we have something we need to fix. But obviously, there's a big appetite among Republican voters and Republican lawmakers to to do something to be able to say they did something here. Right. There were a couple of questions in our last University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll. Do you trust U.S. elections? And, you know, most Republicans said no. And the, and the overall acceptance of the election results at the U.S. level, whatever exactly that means, were a lot more negative. If you asked about Texas elections, they were like, oh, yeah, they're fine. So, you know, you've got that that same dichotomy in the electorate that you see from the governor. Right. Right. Well, well speaking of <laughs> they did win. <laughs> right. Right. It's, right. It's, it's hard right. to just it's hard. It's hard to, to, to you know, jump all over that one. That looks yeah. pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of elections, it is April 2021. It's uh, never too soon to start talking about uh, the 2022 elections. And we had a handful of stories coming out around statewide races up and down the ballot, really, in Texas this week. Uh, I wanted to just spend a little bit of time chatting about those. The, the top of the ballot included, we saw some news around Beto O'Rourke, um, something I found somewhat entertaining in which um, O'Rourke on over the weekend appeared on one of the, the kind of Sunday local um, politics shows and, and said he had no plans to run for governor. Uh, that, you know, can, I think, often be seen or as kind of standard politician talk when they say, no, I'm not planning at the moment or, you know, that leaving yourself some wiggle room to say, well, my plans have changed or, or I wasn't planning at the time. But it generated some headlines, which then immediately caused O'Rourke to reach out to the Tribune to clarify and say, you know, basically lead the door 
open. Patrick, uh, I'm sure you watched this with interest as, as much as the rest of us did. Uh, any, anything we should read from, from Beto? I mean, maybe it wasn't even a flip-flop here, but from at least the, the varying headlines he put out there last week? Well, I mean, those chain of events, you know, show that he clearly still wants to be seen as a potential candidate, um, which could be helpful in, in many different ways. I mean, I think, for example, it's helpful to just the Texas Democratic Party in general for him to continue to be seen as a potential candidate because it means he gets more attention. He gets a, a bigger platform to speak out against Republican leadership and Republican policies in Texas. Um, reporters like me will pay more attention to him if we think he's actually going to, um, you know, run for governor or something like that. So this is all obviously one big game um, in some ways, but I think it's, you know, it's smart for him. And I think it's smart for the Republican or the uh, Democratic Party of Texas uh, to continue have him out there as a potential candidate. Um, and, and also, there's just no one else among Texas Democrats who has his profile, um, you know, who has his ability to convene people, who has his ability to command media attention. Um, and so, you know, if he's removed from the conversation as a potential candidate, um, that's someone who I think, uh, you know, that's a really valuable player who's uh, recedes from the kind of uh, field of play. Sure. It, it, it seems like both parties continue to be willing and happy to have Beto as kind of a a public figure to be thinking about. Of course, every time there's any conversation about him running for governor, there's also, they go back to the presidential debate and the, the hell yes, we're coming for your AK-47 or that, that I might've mangled that quote, right? But um, Republicans seem perfectly happy to be engaging with the idea of him as a candidate as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Abbott's campaign by, by all appearances, you know, relishes the idea of him running against them. Um, and they, as we have discussed many times, you know, they used him as this big boogeyman last cycle when they um, weren't even running against him, but were trying to protect the state house majority. And they linked all the state house candidates, the Democratic state house candidates to him. And so, uh, you know, they're clearly, uh, you know, excited by the opportunity to face him one on one in the governor's race. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, we heard some interesting comments from George P. Bush this morning, Patrick, you were listening to those where he, he floated the idea of a, a primary challenge against uh, Ken Paxton. Tell, tell us a little bit about what he said. Yeah, what was interesting about this interview, and he's given a few interviews earlier this week where he said just as much, but is the, the extent to which he laid out the potential case against Ken Paxton. You know, last year, uh, when word surfaced of this FBI investigation into Ken Paxton, uh, you know, George P. Bush or his campaign put out a statement at the time suggesting that he, he was indeed considering running against Paxton. What we have this morning is him saying he's, you know, quote, seriously considering running against Paxton. And like I said, really going into detail about how he would run against Ken Paxton, talking about how you know, these are very serious allegations against him, um, you know, talking about how the state's top law enforcement official should be, quote, um, above reproach, um, and also saying very specifically that he would not run, make necessarily an ideological case against Ken Paxton. Obviously, in Texas primaries, the go-to kind of argument is this person's not conservative enough. George P. Bush suggested he wouldn't be arguing that. He wouldn't be saying, you know, this person, Ken Pax is not conservative enough. Um, you know, Ken Paxton doesn't support Trump or anything like that. He'd be just saying this is about how Ken Paxton has performed the duties of his office, how he's run his office, and how he's, um, you know, lost the trust of the voters in the process. And so, um, you know, I think that's that's a very interesting a notable distinction for George P. Bush to make um, because he probably would have a very hard time 
running an ideological campaign against Ken Paxton and arguing that he's more conservative than Ken Paxton, um, who obviously has been attorney general for, uh, you know, two terms or is going on two terms and then was a, a very, you know, far right member of the Texas legislature before that. Um, and so I found probably the most notable part was just George P. Bush openly saying, I'm not going to run to his right. I'm not going to pretend that I've been more supportive of Trump necessarily, uh, but I'm going to focus on, I would focus on how he's run his office. This is going to be about competence um, and, you know, management uh, ability. It's going to be remember the indictment versus remember the Alamo, I think. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, whether that's a successful strategy, you know, kind of remains to be seen. Um, you know, this, there was somewhat of a parallel to this in the 2018 Republican primary for agriculture commissioner, where a, a lobbyist by the name of Trey Blocker ran against the current incumbent Sid Miller. And part of his case was that, you know, Sid Miller was just kind of like this guy who was like kind of incompetent for the office, right? Um, you know, he did make some ideological points against him. Um, but he, he did make this case that like, you know, Sid Miller is just not competent enough to run this office. Um, and he lost terribly. So obviously the George P. Bush, Ken Paxson primary would have some different dynamics, but we have seen these Republican primary challenges in the past that aren't necessarily about ideology, but are more about how the incumbent has performed in office. Sure. And, you know, and, and uh, as many of our lis listeners will know, there's, there's a lot of ammunition there. I mean, uh, Ken Paxson uh, has been reported as under investigation by the FBI after some of his top aides accused him of accepting bribes and using the office to help a donor. And, and then there's that uh, criminal indictment for securities fraud, which he has won election, one re-election already once with, but um, definitely something that a uh, candidate, a primary candidate would uh, be interested and willing to, to, to bring up throughout the race. It's a 2015 indictment. It's almost ready for first grade. It's, you know, it's been around for a long, long time. <laughs> Indeed, it, uh, it outlasted the, the Trump administration. Uh, right. Been around, yeah, like you said, for a very long time. And then we also have um, Mike Collier, who uh, was a Democrat running for uh, lieutenant governor in, in 2018 and came reasonably close, lost by five points, I think, closer than many might have expected when he announced his bid uh, uh, whenever that was ahead of the, the 2018 election cycle. And he seems to be hinting, Patrick, that he is gearing up for another run for that office as well. Right, he launched an exploratory committee this week, but um, you know, as we exclusively reported, he's basically in. Um, he told me it was a quote, more of a quote, a confirmatory committee, um, which if you're familiar <laughs> with the sense of humor, this is pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty on brand for him. Um, so he's basically running again. Um, you know, he ran statewide in 2014, ran for comptroller, lost pretty badly. All the Democrats ran statewide that cycle, lost pretty badly. Um, then he ran for lieutenant governor for the first time in 2018 and, and got closer than expected. He, you know, shared the ballot with Beto O'Rourke, who obviously helped um, a lot of uh, down ballot uh, and, you know, other statewide ballot turnout. Um, and so he's at it again. And what I think is kind of interesting about him charging into this race again for 22 is like, he seems to be the rare Democrat who's like, <laughs> you know, actually like enthusiastic early on about a statewide race this cycle. If you look at kind of the conversation around other Democrats and the statewide races in 22, there's a lot of caution. Um, you know, you know, there's a lot of kind of hand wringing about, you know, whether they're going to get all the candidates they want or whether this is actually going to be a, a successful cycle for Democrats statewide. Um, but Mike Collier, you know, seems to be pretty 
emboldened and excited about this. And you just don't see that right now from a lot of folks. Um, we just talked about Beto O'Rourke, obviously, who, you know, said he had no plans and walked it back, you know, not exactly sounding like someone who is like, you know, thrilled about being part of the potential candidate conversation. Um, so I think it was just notable that Collier seems so enthused about this. Um, and, and his reasons for being enthused is, you know, he thinks that Biden, one of the things that he told me is he thinks Biden is going to be a popular president. Biden's going to be an asset in 22, which obviously goes against, um, you know, what history tells us that, the you know, the first midterms of a new president is, is usually pretty tough on the party in power. Um, so we'll see how that pans out. But he again, he believes Biden is, is going to be an asset for him on the ballot. Right. We, we, you have kind of these two competing trend lines that, that people might be looking at. On one hand, we've seen the statewide races get closer in recent years. Uh, Trump winning by, what, five, six points in, in 2020 compared to uh, nine points in 2016. And uh, obviously what happened in 2018 with the Beto O'Rourke uh, Ted Cruz race. But then, as you mentioned, on the other hand, it's 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 now going to be a midterm with a democratic president and, and that often doesn't go well. So, okay. So that about does it for us this week. We will have plenty of time to talk about the 2022 elections and in, in coming weeks and months and even in over a year, but for now, thank you to Ross, Patrick, and Karen. Thank you to our producer, Todd, and thank you to our sponsors, Texas A&M university, Amerigroup, the university of Texas at Austin and Texas 2036. Talk to you all next week. Do